passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Now, when I'm preaching and I usually end up with a longer text, sometimes I get to the end of the message and I have to drop a point or two at the end. We just don't have time to cover that. And this is a longer text. And as I thought about it, I said, well, instead of dropping a point at the end, I'm actually going to drop the first point. So if you're in your outlines, skip point one. Uh, We're just going to go to point two to keep it a little tighter. And what we're going to see is that if you've been following with us, you know that Saul, King Saul, is on a losing streak, isn't he? And like chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, he lost his dynasty. His son will not be king. Chapter 14 that we finished last week, he lost the confidence of his army as he like starved them out as they were pursuing the Philistines by not letting him eat food. And then he threatened and tried to kill his own son. Now, today in chapter 15, he loses his very kingdom. So I would say that's a losing streak. In fact, if you look at Saul's reign, he like gets inaugurated and begins reigning in chapter 13, and he really loses his kingdom here in chapter 15. But he won't actually be dead until the end of the book in verse 31. So for the rest of the time, from after today forward, it's sort of like dead man walking for Saul all the way through the book. So let's go ahead and begin, starting with point number two instead of point one. We see this. God's king must listen to God's word. It comes from the very first verse. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. In this little verse, there are three unique qualities about Saul's kingship that we should notice. The first one is this. Saul was the one who made, or the Lord, excuse me, was the one who made Saul king. Saul did not end up as king because he was a descendant in a kingly line. Saul did not become king because he was a military genius who conquered a kingdom. As you know, if we've been along with, this, along with us for this study, Saul was actually sort of a quiet guy, a reclusive farmer, when God, with his grace, chose him to be king over God's people. So Saul really has absolutely no room for ego when he looks in the mirror. Everything about his life with his kingly reign is because of God's grace upon his life. Second thing we saw in here is this. Saul had to submit to Samuel the prophet. Now this may not be as obvious in English, but it's extremely apparent in Hebrew, where um, this little phrase where Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me, the me is in the emphatic tense. In other words, Saul, do not forget that ultimately around here, you're not like the other kings. You are not ultimately in charge. You are a king under God. And as God's prophet, when God speaks, he speaks sometimes through me directly to you. And so you have to realize you're not the top of the food chain around here. God is, and I, when I speak through him, or when I speak for him, that's above you. The next thing was this. 
the people over whom Saul reigned were the Lord's, not his people. So Saul, you are over God's people. These are not your people there to serve you. They're God's people to serve him, and you are to be stewards of God's people. And then he says this, since God has made you king, since you're under God's authority, since you're responsible for God's people, you are not allowed to go and do your own thing. You must obey God's words. In the Hebrew, this is interesting because it's a double emphatic. It's you must most definitely obey what God tells you to do. No creativity, no making it up as you go along. You have to obey God. Do you understand that, Saul? That's essentially what Samuel is doing. And if you've had kids, haven't you had this same talk with your children? Like you sit them down, you are not in charge of this house. You know, if it wasn't for your mother and the father, you wouldn't even be here. And you were under our authority. You obey our words. You don't get to make up the rules as you go along. Anybody had that conversation? Yes. This is the conversation that Samuel has with Saul right here in verse 1. Now, after this, Samuel gives Saul some commands from God. Let's see what God wants Saul to do. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wow, that's pretty strong. Let's begin to unpack this. First of all, it talks about this Amalek guy. Who is this fellow? This is actually the grandson of Esau. You remember back in Genesis, Jacob and Esau? And you read about him in Genesis 36, verse 12. And Amalek's descendants are known as the Amalekites. Incidentally, they have a long history of violent opposition toward the Israelites. They have the distinct uh, fame of being the first nation to attack and try to destroy Israel when Israel came out of Egypt during the Exodus. The Amalekites are their own nomadic people that lived in the south, the southeast area from the Israelites in the Sinai Desert. They're described oftentimes like terrorists and preying on the weak. Then they tried to destroy the Israelites. You may remember that battle. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 17. It's the one battle that when as long as Moses had his hands up, the Israelites were winning. But when Moses put his hands down, the Amalekites were winning. So Aaron and Hur got on his left and his right and held his hands up so the Israelites would win the battle. These are the Amalekites we're talking about. And at the end of Exodus 17, Moses says that one day when Israel is firmly established in the land, they will have the job of coming back and completely destroying and wiping out the Amalekites for their sin and for what they have done to the Israelites, trying to destroy them in the Exodus. 
Now that's recorded in Exodus 17, but it's also recorded in Deuteronomy. Just so you know what Deuteronomy is, it literally means Deuteros Nomos, which means the second giving of the law. Before Moses is going to die, he sort of does a refresher course with the Israelites on God's law. And he brings up the topic of the Amalekites again, reminding the Israelites that one day they are to wipe them out. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Just to let you know, we know that the Amalekites were a pretty mean and nasty people toward the Israelites in the time of Moses, but they did not improve over time. They continued to harass and try to attack and destroy the Israelites. You go to the book of Judges, you find the Amalekites mentioned again and again going after the Israelites. And even later on, when we look at Agag, later in this chapter, you'll find he is known as a murderer who has made many women childless. So they do not improve over time. And Moses said that eventually what they were to be done is they were to be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, as soon as I say that, I know that some of us struggle with that. I mean, that's genocide. That's God wiping out an entire people, an entire nation. How dare God do that? And this is a genocide for something they did in the past. Couple thoughts. Uh, first of all, it wasn't just for what they did in the past, but remember they continued to harass and try to destroy Israel in the present for hundreds of years. God gave them the opportunity to repent. Did they repent? Absolutely not. Consistent problem. Secondly, God is the judge of the earth. Does God have the right to take out an entire nation? Does God have, yeah, there we go. We got a yes, exactly. God is God. He is not us. This is not Saul's idea to wipe out this nation. This is God's decision to wipe out this nation. And as God, he does have the right to do that. And there's also a preventative nature in this. These people were known as being particularly wicked, particularly evil. They lived in the promised land, and God did not want his people mixing with them, so his people would not pick up their sinful and wicked ways. So he was sort of like trying to cut them out of the promised land, like trying to cut out a cancer, because cancer, when it gets in the body, eventually affects the entire body. So these guys are to be wiped out. Now, by the way, if you guys who know your Bible pretty well, um, do the Israelites do a good job of completely wiping out people like the Amalekites and other particularly wicked folks? You guys are answering pretty well, but you're shaking your head back and forth. Absolutely not. But do the Israelites pick up their sinful ways? And does it come back to bite them? Yes, exactly. So, 
that's one of the couple of reasons why these guys are wiped out. Now, in Hebrew, there's a special word used to describe this kind of warfare. It's the Hebrew word harem. In English, it's transliterated as H-A-R-E-M. And it's a kind of warfare where God's people were acting as God's judgment. So it means you do not take captives, you do not take prisoners, you do not keep anything. You are acting as God's form of judgment, wiping everything out on the face of that people. Uh, for instance, when the Israelites went into Jericho, you know how they were to wipe everything out? That was harem warfare. Same idea, not to keep anything at all. Let's see how well Saul does at following God's instructions. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. I think the simple point is uh, Saul has a much bigger army this time. <laughs> Remember in chapter 14, his army was only 3,000, and most of them abandoned him, and he was down to 600. Now he has an army of about 200,000 to get the job done, much larger. And then we read this. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And you're like, all right, we've gone from Amalekites. Uh, and we, now we have Kenites. Who are these guys? These guys lived among the Amalekites. They're also a nomadic people. They were metal workers. Uh, there's an interesting connection. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. And we know that in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites tried to wipe out Israel. But in Exodus chapter 18, we find the Kenites came to their aid and actually tried to help Israel. And that help was not forgotten. So Saul says to these guys, hey, you guys better clear out of this area. We remember what good you did to us. And if our ancestors were coming out of the Egypt and coming into the promised land, we don't want to have any like casualties, any um, unnecessary collateral damage. And then we read this. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shore, which is east of Egypt. Sometimes you read short verses in the Bible, and the significance of what happened in a verse we pass over it because we run right through it. Folks, this is a lot of body bags. This is a huge area that Saul and this army attacked and wiped out. Let me show you on the map what it looks like. It's deep into the southwest and deep into the southeast. All of that area, all of the Amalekites are wiped out. Well, it looks like Saul is actually obeying God's words. He's doing what he's supposed to do until we get to the next verse. And this is what we find. Saul partially obeyed God's word. 
and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Earlier I told you there's a special Hebrew word used to describe this kind of warfare. It's called harem. This Hebrew word harem is used three times in these two verses. Two times to describe what Saul and the army did destroy, but one time to describe what they didn't destroy. They destroyed all the people, and they destroyed the things that were worthless, the things that probably should have been destroyed anyway, but they didn't destroy the king, they didn't destroy the best of the sheep and the oxen, and they didn't destroy all the really good stuff. Saul knew God's instructions. God had had that sit-down talk with him in verse 1, remember that? But rather than completely obey God's word, Saul chose to only partially obey God's word. And that is not a good idea. Now, a couple thoughts here for you. Why did Saul keep the king? We don't know, but this is a guess. In that day, pagan kings, what they would do when they would conquer another kingdom, they would usually keep the king alive, and they would cut off the king's thumbs and cut off the king's big toe, toes, and then they would have that king be a servant picking up trash in your house. Sort of a way of continual humiliation. And we already know that Saul has a really big ego issue. And probably what Saul wanted to do with Agag, keep him around, make him work for me, so I can continually be reminded about how I beat this mighty king. We don't know for sure, but that might be what happened. Another thing in this verse that is not necessarily clear in our English translations, but it is abundantly clear in the Hebrew, it's about whose idea this was. The idea of sparing the king, sparing the best of the sheep and the oxen, and keeping the best of stuff was clearly Saul's idea. He's the one who chose to only go with partial obedience to God's word, not full obedience. Remember that, because as we get deeper into this chapter, that's a very important piece of information to know. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Saul chose not full obedience, just partial obedience. Even after God had the talk with him in verse 1, and the result is, quite honestly, God is angry. He's very angry at Saul's decision to rebel and do his own thing. And you say, well, how angry is God? It just says here, I regret that I have made God or Saul king. 
now here's where it's interesting. This little phrase, I regret that I have made Saul king. In the Hebrew, the particular way it's constructed is sort of unique. There's only one other spot in the Hebrew Old Testament where this Hebrew construction is put together that way. So if you're a Hebrew person and you're hearing this and you're reading this, that would echo back to that earlier reference. What is that earlier reference? It's in Genesis. It describes about how God felt about the wickedness on the earth in the days of Noah where he was so upset over the wickedness of mankind that he decided to destroy the entire earth with a flood. Is God angry? Oh, yeah. Look with that little phrase. It's Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is the same kind of reaction that God has towards Saul and his partial obedience in our chapter. It's not just that God is angry, but now Samuel is also angry. Why would he be so angry? Well, it goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 12. You may remember that when the king was put in place, there were stipulations of how that would work and promises about what would happen if the king did not obey God's word. Like if the king didn't obey God's word, then God would fight against that king and God would actually fight against his people. Samuel is upset because not just Saul is going to get in trouble, but a lot of people are going to suffer. We know this principle, don't we? When a leader sins, the people suffer every time. And that's what's going to happen to God's people. So what we find is Samuel gets up in the morning and he is off to have an encounter, an encounter with Saul over what he has done. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Wow. Saul is setting up a Mount Rushmore to himself, having his own face carved in the rock to memorialize his great victory over the Amalekites. Does this boy have an ego problem or what? Very clearly thinks like he is the secret of all his success. Not good. Now, what happens in this encounter between Saul and Samuel, Samuel is going to try to show Saul his sin. And Saul will again and again try and weasel out of his sin. He's going to make a number of excuses. And folks, the honest truth is we make these same excuses to get try and get out of our sin too, for being accountable to our sin. And now I wrote down five, but as I was reviewing my notes last night before this morning, I realized there's actually a sixth. So I'll give you a bonus one as we go through this. It's right at the front. Samuel confronted Saul about his sin. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. 
I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Is that true? Absolutely not. God told Samuel the night before that Saul has not kept my commandments. And so what is, Samuel knows that. So as soon as he sees, Saul, excuse me, Saul knows that. As soon as he sees Samuel, he chooses to lie right through his teeth to sort of preempt this whole thing so he's not going to get in trouble. Now, is that something we ever do? That when we sin and somebody approaches us about our sin, we lie right through our teeth? Nope, I didn't do that. Not me at all. Must have the wrong person. Lying about our sin is definitely a sinful response to sin, isn't it? Saul does it, and we do it. But it's not just lying. Oh, by the way, when you lie, one of the problems with lying to try and get out of our sin is we often get caught in our lie. Isn't that true? And that's exactly what happens to Saul. He gets caught in his lie in the very next verse. Samuel said, well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? <clears throat> if you were to destroy everything, why do I hear sheep and goats right now? The Hebrew is sort of fun. It says, you know, it, it, you were supposed to obey God's voice, and then it comes along and says, well, why am I hearing the sheep voice and the oxen voice? I, I'm hearing the wrong voice, Saul. Now, what we see after he gets caught in his lie is that Saul continues ways to weasel out. And he tries this. Saul then tries to blame shift his sin onto his soldiers. Verse 15. Saul said, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Well, remember what we learned in verse 9. Whose idea was it to spare the king, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of the stuff? Saul's. And what does he do when he's caught? Blames it on his soldiers. It was their idea. Blame shifts his guilt away. Isn't this something we often do when we're caught in our sin? Blame it on other people? We come up with an excuse for why you know, something didn't get done? For instance, if you have a teenager, do your, does your teenager always have an excuse for why something didn't get done? You know, why is your homework not done? Well, the dog ate my homework. Why is your homework not done? Well, the internet's not working. Why is your homework not done? Well, my computer wouldn't start. You know, it's, it's always an excuse and blame it on someone or something else. That's a sinful response to our sin. Rather than admitting it and owning it, we love to blame it on somebody else, just like Saul. In fact, this response, this blame shifting, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you guys know when that happened? Remember when God approached Adam? about eating the forbidden fruit, what does Adam say? It's her fault. She gave it to me. Like, stay, take responsibility, Adam. You chose to eat it. But there's more than just uh, lying. There's more than just blame shifting. Here we see this. Saul tried to rationalize his sin, to justify his sin. 
oh, the reason we didn't destroy these animals was we are bringing them as (coughs) sacrifices to our God, or to your God. In other words, I know what God told me to do, but I have a better idea than what God told me to do. So I'm trying to rationalize why I could disobey him. Never mind the fact that this was called harem warfare. Never mind the fact where you're supposed to destroy absolutely everything. Never mind the fact when you know about harem warfare at Jericho and you know what happened to Achan when he didn't destroy everything, he could rationalize his disobedience. Now, is that something we do? Do we ever rationalize our sin to try to justify our sin before God? Do we rationalize partial obedience to God's word rather than full obedience to God's word? We do that all the time. No different than Saul. Uh, We don't report everything on our taxes so that I could give more money to the church. Or maybe it's, hey, I've got to (laughs) try. Or maybe it's, I copied the homework because that way it could be done on time to to go to youth group because God wants me to go to youth group. We try all kinds of things to rationalize our sin. But not just rationalizing of his sin. He tries to this. Saul tries to minimize his sin by focusing on what he did right. At the very end, he says, well, I kept this stuff, but look at all this stuff I destroyed. Look at all this stuff I, I did right. Don't look at all the stuff I did wrong. Sort of like when you have a teenager and you're going to be gone for the day. You say, you have three things to accomplish today. You have to take the dog for a walk, you have to clean up your room, and you have to empty the dishwasher. You ever give your kids a list like that? And you come home, and the dog has been taken for a walk, but the room is still a mess, and the dishwasher's not empty. And you talk to your child about it, and what do they say? Well, at least I took the dog for a walk. Doesn't that count? Like, yes, it's only partial obedience. This is what Saul is doing. He's trying to minimize his sin by saying, just look at the things I did right. Don't look at the things I did wrong. And so we see in this verse, excuse after excuse after excuse, sinful responses to sin. And Samuel's like, he knows these are all excuses. So what do you think he does? Stop giving me excuses. Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, you started out small, but you are large and in charge right now. You are the king. Stop blaming this on somebody else because you are the one who's in charge. Accept your responsibility. Then he says, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Accept your responsibility and understand what your mission is. You were to utterly destroy the Amalekites. So now that we've refreshed you on what is your position, refreshed you on what is your mission, why did you not accomplish the task? You had clear instructions. You had all the authority. That's what he says. 
then why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? This is interesting. If you were with us last week, do you remember the word pounce? Who pounced last week? It was the soldiers. After Saul had made them go for 25 miles of chasing the Philistines without having any food or drink. Nightfall came, and it says, and the soldiers pounced on the animals, and they slaughtered them so quickly they didn't properly drain the meat because they were famished. Who's pouncing now? Saul. And what is he pouncing on because he cannot control or restrain his appetite for? The stuff. Saul is a materialist. He loves the good stuff in life more than the God who gave him life. And when he sees nice stuff, he uses that to rationalize disobedience to God. You ever been there? Find yourself longing after stuff? Well, God, surely I don't have to really do this or obey that. I can, as long as I can get the stuff. Saul's a materialist. This is why partial obedience comes from his life. And what does Jesus say about this? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's because he really loves the money, the stuff, that he lies, that he blame shifts, that he rationalizes his sin, that he minimizes his sin, as long as he can have his stuff. And I think all of us can find that's a little too close to home. Now that Samuel has him really pinned down, when there's no more logical arguments that he can use to get make an excuse for his sin, what Saul tries to do is then get loud, get angry, and argue for his sin. You ever seen that? When you call somebody on their sin or God makes them convict them of their sin, they start to get angry and argue for their sin. Saul got angry and tried to argue his way out of sin. And you can see the argument side coming here. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. At the end, he goes right back to blame shifting. But do you see the arguing side in the front half? He's lost the logic in the argument, so he's going to go a sheer brute force in the argument. He raises his voice to Samuel. And by the way, does that ever work? Not usually. Not with Samuel, that's for sure. But here's what often happens. When we get angry, do we ever say things we shouldn't? Do we ever say more than we should? I do. And... Saul does. 
prior to this, Samuel has just talked to him about the sheep and the goats. But here all of a sudden Saul confesses that not just the sheep and the goats, but he kept the king alive, threw in more information than he needed to. Now at this point, Saul or Samuel drops the hammer. And this is the very famous section that we've all read before. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Well, the conclusion's at the end. God has rejected him from being the king. And the verses prior to that are trying to help Saul understand the significance of his sin and why God has rejected him. For instance, he says, more pleasing to God than sacrifices is obedience. Listening is better than the fat of rams. By the way, the fat of rams, that is the, like the best part of the sacrifice. Listening and obeying God is more pleasing to God than any sacrifice you would make in worship. Our obedience to God's word is more pleasing to God than you being here. Our obedience to God's word is more pleasing than singing to God. It's more pleasing than serving for God. It's more pleasing to God than tithing, than giving, than generosity, than giving to the building fund itself. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And by the way, it's not just partial obedience that's pleasing to God. It's full obedience. Did Saul have partial obedience? He did. The Apostle John talks about this. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Obedience to God is more pleasing than worship to God. I'll give you some more examples. The Bible says this when it comes to purity. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. More pleasing to God is if you are a single man or single woman, is that you would maintain your purity in obedience to God, then you would come to church and serve God that you would come to church and give to God, that you would come to church and sing to God. Not that serving, singing, and giving are not important. They are important. But more important is obeying God's word. Not partially, but fully. The Bible also says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, we live in a world that has a lot of corrupting talk going on, especially on social media, where everyone loves to tear 
other people down. Everyone loves to tear the other political party, whatever your side is, down. But God's word says, let no corrupting talk, let no rotten talk come out of your mouth, but only what builds people up. That our words would build people up is more pleasing to God, that we would obey this than singing to God, than sacrifice to God, than worship to God. It says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Is there somebody in your life that hurt you? Is there a family member who has deeply wounded you? Is there somebody who stabbed you in the back? Have you forgiven them? Obeying God in this area and forgiving them is more important than attending worship, than serving in church, than all these other worship issues, obedience to God in these areas. And I like this one. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. God says if you're right here in church today, any day, and you realize you've got a broken relationship with your brother, God would rather you walk out of church on the spot and take care of that issue than wait to the end of the service. Because obedience to God is more important than worship. Not that worship is not important, but obedience is super important. He says this, rebellion. It's like the sin of divination. When you know God's word and you choose intentionally to rebel against God's word like Saul did, it's it's like witchcraft. It's seriously offensive to God. Presumption is like the sin of iniquity and idolatry. Presumption means stubbornness, pride, insubordination. To God, it's like worshiping a pagan deity. It's offensive to God. Now, at this point, Samuel has really buttoned things down on Saul. He doesn't have any place to go. He's made it abundantly clear what his sin is. The question is, now that Saul, Samuel has showed Saul his sin, what will Saul do with his sin? And here we see another sinful response to sin. Saul responded to his sin with worldly sorrow, not genuine repentance. Look what happens. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin, and notice this, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Forgive me of my sin and make sure you come back with me so we can worship together, because I want to make sure we look good. I want to make sure I don't like end up shamed by you in public. All that Saul is worried about is the optics. The guy who has just built a monument to himself wants to make sure everybody's still looking up at him, not down at him. He's not genuinely repentant. He's just sorry he got caught. Then we see this. 
And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Saul turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to your to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I'll throw something in I didn't have time to throw in first service, but your second service, I'll give you a little something extra. The skirt of the rope is the very bottom hem of the rope. The only way that Saul could have grabbed it and had torn is if Saul was on the ground begging on his knees to Samuel to come back from him. The guy who just built a monument to himself, a Mount Rushmore to himself, is now on his knees begging that Samuel would come with him and not he would be able to save face with his people. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, no second chances on this one, Saul. Then he said, I have sinned, yet Honor me now before the elders of my people and, and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Is Saul focusing on his sin with God? Do you see him trying to focus with God or is he focusing on the optics of how he appears before the people? It's all optics, all worldly sorrow, so he looks good. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, Samuel has a change of mind. He decides to go back with Saul. And why? To finish the job that Saul had not done. Here it is. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother be so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, for application, there's really two sets in this chapter. The first one is simply this, obedience. Obedience to God's word is extremely important, isn't it? To obey is better than sacrifice. And obeying God's word is actually more important than worship. We saw that very clearly. But the other key action point is this. How do we respond to our sin? We saw that Saul responded wrong. He had sinful responses to his sin. Number one, he lied. Then we have this. Don't blame other, blame my sin on other people. Don't try to rationalize my sin to justify it. Don't try to minimize my sin. Don't try to argue my way out of my sin. And when I do see my sin, actually genuinely repent. Don't just have worldly sorrow that I got caught. Well, Saul didn't obey God's word, but thank goodness we are not serving in Saul's army. We're serving in Jesus' army. 
And Jesus did obey God's word fully and completely, even when it was terribly hard. When God the Father's will was for Jesus to go to the cross, to die in our place for our sin, to become sin for us, Jesus obeyed perfectly to save you and to save me. And amen that we're following King Jesus, not a disobedient King Saul. Amen? Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us. Thank you for your word, which shows us the importance of obedience to you. Full obedience, complete obedience, not partial obedience. Thank you also for how we had the chance to see sinful responses to sin in the life of King Saul. But most of all, we thank you, Jesus, for being the king that did obey fully and completely your Father's will and your Father's word to save us from our sin. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.